with that, we say, he is risen. risen. So when I tell you about cookies, you get excited. But if I just come up here and say good morning, it's kind of like, eh, whatever, it's just Justin. Okay, fine, I see you guys. Well, hey, I'm I'm super excited to be, uh, have the privilege of opening up the scriptures before you this morning. Uh, As Darian mentioned, this is the biggest holiday in the Christian calendar. Uh, This is, if without today, nothing else matters. Uh, and so as we go into this, we're going to be looking at uh, the first person that got to experience this amazing moment, this amazing day. And what we're going to see is it's going to surprise us a little bit. Because what we're going to see is in th- she's asked three different questions, two here in the Gospel of John and one in the Gospel of Luke. And what those do, those asked of Mary, are going to capture the significance of the resurrection in our lives. But before we go there, let's set the stage for a moment. So this is all around the person of Mary Magdalene. Now, Magdalene is not her last name, just like Christ is not Jesus's last name. It means she's from a location. She's from Magda. This is on the west shore of the Sea of Galilee. And what we know about her, there's a lot of like talk out there about was she a prostitute? We, we don't know about that. But what we do know is that at one point in her life, Mary had been uh, uh, possessed by seven different demons. And Jesus had come to her and cast them out of her. Now, to start an Easter message with demons being cast out may not sound normal. But you have to imagine what that would have meant for Mary. The significance of her life. And so it was such an impactful moment for Mary that what she ended up doing is she went and followed Jesus. She likely was one of the people that funded Jesus's ministry. She, had, she was of some wealth, but she was such, so passionate about following Jesus that as we look back on Good Friday, she's actually one of the last few people present. So think the 12 disciples that we like to talk about all the time, right? They have all gone except one, John. And now you have Mary. So this, she had stuck through it all. She had seen him scourged. She had seen him beaten. She had seen him ridiculed. And so Mary is deeply, deeply attached. She's deeply, deeply passionate about this. And she sticks around to the, all, the bitter, bitter end. And so this is now Sunday morning. Friday was that moment. Sunday morning she arrives because on Friday she wouldn't have had the time to and no one would have had the time to get the body ready for burial. So let me show you some pictures. For those of you that know, we recently had an opportunity to go to Israel. And so this is a a picture of what's called the garden tomb. The most historical site where this all took place is called the Holy Sepulchre Church. Uh, the Catholic faith came and they built a church on top of that. This is what a, a, another site that is a potential site. So this is what a tomb would have looked like, okay? Uh, it's just literally a rock quarry built. And so somebody who was of wealth would have just built into it. And what would have happened, you could go to the next slide if you could. This is what a stone would have looked like. What would have happened... Is, and this is what Mary's walking up to see. Okay? There's a stone and it rolls back and forth. These rock quarries would have held multiple bodies in them. So imagine you're a rich person. You just 
passed away, your body would have been embalmed. It would have been covered in spices. It would have been put in a tomb like this. The stone would have been rolled over it. And then a year later, they would have come in taking your bones out of that and put them in their final resting place. So this stone was meant to roll. There, um, so here, this stone rolled away. And then this is what the actual inside of this potential site looked like. So you see on the left and on the right is where two bodies could have potentially laid. So Mary is coming to a site like this. And she's expecting to see a stone in front of it because she has to come and finish getting his body ready for the year-long process. Friday, he died around 3 p.m. Sabbath started at sundown. So it would have been in haste. It would have been in rush. And she's so passionate. She loves Jesus so much. She can't believe he's dead, first of all. But the fact that she comes again to get his body ready for that process shows what he has meant to her. So she shows up to the tomb. The tomb is open. The, uh, the stone is rolled away. And so she runs back to get the two of uh, Jesus's closest followers, Peter. And it says the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, this is just a little snid that I think is hysterical. So imagine you are with Jesus, with him all the time. And you are the one that gets to write the story about the resurrection. You don't name yourself. You just say, Jesus loved me. I'm the guy that Jesus loved. Okay. And then you're like, I'm going to just sneak a little jab in here for a moment. Because what do we find out about Peter and the disciple who Jesus loved? It just so happened that John was faster than Peter. So he's like, hey, I won the foot race. For centuries later, I want everybody to remember that I'm faster than Peter. He may be quick with his mouth, but I'm quick with my feet. So I won. I'm going to say it twice just so you remember that I am faster than Peter. And they show up. Uh, John doesn't go in. Peter, he goes in. He sees that the body's not there. The, the linen cloth that would cover his face is folded neatly. Doesn't look like my children's bedroom. And my children's bedrooms look like that because my bedroom looks like that. It's, a, it's just how it goes. It's folded. It's not in haste. It's not rushed. It's not trying to get out of here. Re- Imagine Jesus rising, seeing the clothes, folding them, and, and quick, quietly leaving. And so Mary uh, is there. And she's asked two questions in John and th- a third question in the Gospel of Luke. So let's look at this first question. Because these are what capture the significance of it in our lives. The first question is this. Why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? Now, plainly, it makes sense that she's weeping. She's just experienced a great amount of loss. The one she had placed her hope in is gone. And not only is he dead, but she's assuming That he's gone. He's toast. He's out of there. That somebody had come and robbed the body from the grave, which was a common practice of the day. So she's assuming that not only is he dead, but she can't even give the honor to his body that she wants to give. And so she's, uh, it says weeping. The better translation is wailing. This is an ugly cry. This is snot flowing down wailing loudly. This is not some nice 
beautiful type of tears streaming down her face. I mean, imagine Mary wailing early in the morning at the tomb. And who does Jesus show up to first? My friends, it should not be lost on us that the first person that the Lord revealed himself to is somebody who's grieving and in mourning. Somebody who's experienced tremendous sadness. It's not a party that he arrives to. It's a house of mourning. If you've lived long enough, you've been where Mary has been. You have ugly cried. You've grieved. You've been hurt. You've mourned. You've tasted the saltiness and sourness of tears as they've streamed down your face. And that is the situation that Jesus shows up to first. Jesus knows sadness very well. The shortest verse in the Bible found just earlier in this book, in the Gospel of John, he arrives to a a scene of another great sadness. His friend Lazarus has died. His good friends, Mary and Martha, have come to him, accusing him. Why were you not here? Why did you not show up? God, weren't you supposed to have the power to do this? I mean, I expected you, God, to be able to do this, and now I am experiencing this. How many of us have had that in our lives? Expectations unmet, sadness experienced. And what's the shortest verse of the Bible? Jesus wept. That's the same word that Mary is experiencing here. Jesus wailed. Jesus tasted the saltiness and sourness of the brokenness of the world. Jesus is able to be close to the brokenhearted. Because he himself has been brokenhearted. He's able to identify because he himself knows. Psalm 34 says this. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord, Yahweh, is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. What is the answer to our weeping? What gives dignity, value, hope in the midst of the great sadnesses that we experience in this world? It's no accident the Lord chose a tomb that was in the middle of a garden, the garden tomb. If you know your Bible, you know that God has a thing for gardens, He likes gardens, and you find gardens all throughout the scripture. You see, in the beginning of the story of God is the story of the first garden. We call that the the Garden of Eden, right? Here in this garden, everything was perfect. God walked close to his people. He had made everything. There's no sin. There's no brokenness. Adam and Eve knew themselves. They knew each other. They knew God. They walked naked and felt no shame. The best way that the world is described in its perfection is the lack of shame. So here they are, Adam and Eve walking in the midst of a garden. But what do we also know happens in the garden two chapters later? 
They, we know that they choose to believe a lie rather than the truth. They choose to rebel against God. In essence, what they say in the garden is not your will be done, but mine. You, God, gave them one rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't take something into your hands that's only supposed to be in God's hands. We are to trust him, walk in faith, believe in what he says, and just walk trusting in him. And what do they do? Nah, you're holding out on me. I'm going to go ahead and take this in my own hands. Not your will, God, be done, but I want my will to be done. And so they cast them out of the garden. But the, the garden story doesn't end there. Just a few days prior to the resurrection story, Jesus finds himself in another garden. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. It's on the east side of Jerusalem. It's on the Mount of Olives. And so there's this olive orchard all around him. And here, he just had eaten the Last Supper with his disciples. He had just given them some last instructions. And he told two of his disciples, hey, I need you to stay awake. And so what does he do in the Garden of Gethsemane? He goes and he begs God, God, I do not want to experience what I'm about to experience. He knew the cross was before him. He knew that he was about to be crushed for iniquities. He knew that, remember, he's around olives. What happens to olives in order to make olive oil? They have to be crushed and pressed. He knew that he was about to experience the excruciating pain of being crushed for the sins of the world, which means that the infinite God who broke into finite history, who took on flesh and dwelt among us in his finite body, his infinity was going to take on the infinite sins of all the world. Not just a sin, sin itself in infinite, infinity, time passed, outside of time itself, Jesus knew that he was about to be crushed, not just on the cross, but by the weight, the, the heaviness of our sin. And he looked at that and says, I don't want that. But he did not say what Adam and Eve said. What did he say? Not my will, but your will be done. He flips the script. Their rebellion is now his obedience. They walk away and he walks towards God. And what happens because of his being crushed for our sins? What happens because infinite became finite and took on sin? What happens now? Your and my sin, our rebellion against God. Every time that we're more like Adam and Eve, and less like Jesus, he's taken that upon himself and died to forgive that so you don't have to walk in that anymore. So you don't have to walk in the shame that sin brings. So you don't have to walk in guilt. So that everything that we have done in rebellion in line with Adam and Eve, he can say, you know what? I know you did that. But now because you're mine, you are now in Christ. You are now aligned with me. And I've forgiven all of those sins. That's the story of Easter. That's why Jesus must, it says in this passage, rise from the dead. But brothers and sisters, the garden story doesn't end there. Because as we look to the end of the story, we find ourselves in a garden city. 
The hope in the midst of the sadness is not that we will be taken out of this sadness right now. It's that one day all sadness, all grief, all pain, all suffering will be gone. For you to align yourself with Jesus, for you to say that I place my faith in him, you now have a promised future hope. Where in this garden city, God will come back to earth. It's not that we go and die and go play this harp like with angel wings at the end of it all. No, God comes back to earth. He makes his dwelling place among us again. We're given perfected bodies that do not decay. And the scripture says he will wipe away every tear from every eye. The scripture actually says that God bottles up our weeping. He bottles up our tears. So I want you to imagine every single tear you've ever cried. As I'm getting older, I'm getting more weepy. So my bottle is going to be growing. As a, when I was a kid, it was this itty bitty bottle. It's getting bigger. But think of all the sadness, the grief. You're weeping, you're wailing, you're ugly crying. What God does in the resurrection, he says, I know that. I've experienced that. I've carried the sin that caused that sadness. Whether it's your own sin that leads you into rebelling against God or it's somebody else that wounds you. Jesus himself has carried that, has been crushed for that, has has identified he became the sin so that you and I could now have hope. Because brothers and sisters and friends, the resurrection of Jesus gives hope to our sadness. But Mary's not only asked that question. She's not only asked, why are you weeping? She's asked the second question. She's asked by Jesus, whom are you seeking? Who are you seeking? Like I said, she thought she's come to anoint his body with spices for long-term burial. Now, what she was seeking is not what she got. But what she got was something that she ultimately needed. You see, the word seek here, another way to translate that is what do you desire? What do you desire? She has placed what I would say is her faith, her love, in Jesus into action and her actions reveal the aim, the quest, the end of her life. So if the question is, what do you desire? We see that Jesus was trying to give her beyond what she was desiring in the moment. Mary didn't notice that Jesus was the one she'd been looking for the whole time. She thought he was a gardener. I mean, she's weeping so much that one, she's not freaked out by the angels. Everybody else in scripture, every time they see an angel, what happens? They, they're f- fearful. They're terrified. She doesn't even bat an eye. She just says, I'm looking. She's sweeping so much. She's so desirous. She's so upset that she doesn't even recognize Jesus right in front of her. But Jesus comes to her asks her, what are you, whom are you seeking? 
As we think about this desire of our lives, the author named J.K.A. Smith says this in his book, You Are What You Love. It says this, to be human is to be on a quest. To live is to be embarked on a kind of unconscious journey toward a destination of your dream. You can't not bet your life on something. You can't not be headed somewhere. The place we unconsciously strive towards is what ancient philosophers of habit called our telos, which is our goal or our end. But the telos we live towards is not something we primarily want or believe or think about. Rather, our telos or end, our goal, is what we want. It's what we long for. It's what we crave. What is it that you desire? What is it that you crave? What I want to submit to you is that many of us have desires that are much too small. Much too small. That can never satisfy the depth of your craving and longing that God put there. For some, it's likes, influence, prestige to be known. For others, it's possessions, money, comfort, control. Health, wellness, you go on and on and on. Comfort. We desire those things, but I want to submit to you this morning that those are too small to fulfill the true depth of your life. So assess your desires. What are you seeking? What is it that you desire and long for? And then ask the question, is it really worth it? If you were to get the thing that you think you really, really want, would it be the fullness of what God is capable of giving you? If we're honest, these desires are trying to replace God in our lives. And the resurrection makes the claim that the ultimate desire for humanity is found not in those things. Our ultimate desire is fulfilled only in Jesus and Jesus alone. This is why Paul can say in Philippians 3.8, he says this, indeed, I count everything as loss. Say everything. everything. There we go. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, dung, a four-letter word in the Greek that we can't even say. That's what Paul is saying here. I counted all, hmm, in order that I might gain Christ. Everything I count as loss, all those desires, all those things I think I want, the success, the fame, the house, the job, the income, the status, the likes, the influences, all of it means nothing because I know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And that's why he prays this for us in Ephesians 3. It says that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge 
that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And Jesus, in his final prayer in John 17, tells us this. This is eternal life. And this is him praying to the Father. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is the only true answer to humanity's longing, the craving, the desire? What the scripture says is is the resurrected Jesus. Being united with him, aligned with him, drawn to him, connected to him. That is what ultimately gives us And it gives us new destination to our desires. And the destination is to know and be known by him. That's the second question. The third question. She's not only asked, asked, um, why are you weeping and whom do you seek? She's asked a third question. This is found in Luke 24. And she's asked this plainly. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. The basic fact of the Christian faith is that Jesus is no longer dead. We're having this conversation with our youngest, uh, our family, I think it was yesterday. And we were going through the story and we're, we're kind of walking through Holy Week and trying to get him to understand. And at one point they're like, well, it's Saturday. Is he still dead? And we're like, no, he's not dead because that was then. And so we, we had him say, like, you know, your birthday you know that like on your birthday, you're not born again, right? You're, we just go look back and celebrate your birthday. That's kind of what this is all about. Jesus isn't dead on Silent Saturday and Good Friday. He's actually alive. But these are days that we look back and remember. These are days that we look back and, and dwell on and think about. And here's the thing. If that's the basic fact of Christian faith, then no one can be neutral about when it comes to Jesus. You either believe what he says, believe the, attest, uh, the testimony of the apostles, or don't. Because this is an, not only an invitation to believe with your head, like objective truth. Like I can believe that Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, right? That's an objective fact. I have no experience to that. I can say, okay, I'm going to trust somebody else. I'm going to trust my history books. But I don't actually experience that a lot of times that's how many of us approach the resurrected Jesus as this objective fact as this yeah somebody else told me that one day yes I can check the box say I believe that like I believe two plus two equals four okay but the invitation here is not that you just believe in somebody else's faith, but you have your own. That you go from believing that this is fake news to faith and that you go from a surface level belief that only affects one day a year or one day a week or even an hour and a half every Sunday morning to how this addresses every area of life. And in the coming weeks, that's what we're going to be looking at as we continue this Arise series. How does the gospel, how does the resurrected Jesus affect every single day of our life? And as we close, I want to pay attention to when people believe this. When, when did Peter 
and John and Mary, when did it go from objective belief to experiential belief? You see, for Peter, he hadn't believed yet. It, it says he walked away. John, it says that he believed. When he saw the empty tomb, he believed, which is mind-boggling. But an empty tomb for most of us is not enough. An empty tomb is an empty tomb. Mary needed to see. She needed to know. Mary needed to be called by name. In this passage, Mary's name is used three times. The first time and the second time in verse 1 and 11. In the Greek, she's called Maria, which is how we get Mary. This was her common name. This was the name that the disciples would have used of her. This is the name that she would have been, uh, that would have been said over her as those demons were cast out of her. But it's interesting. In verse 16, when, because she's talking to Jesus, she's literally having a conversation with him. But what switches in her that goes from her thinking he's the gardener to her calling him Rabboni, teacher. You look and it doesn't make much sense to us, but if you, understand, if you see in the original language in verse 16, he does, not call, he does not call her by her common name. He does not say Maria here. He says Miriam. This was the name when she was a child. This is what her mama and papa would have called her. This is when she was pure, when she was innocent, when she was undefiled by the brokenness and sadness of the world. This is before the, the grossness of sin had gotten any effect on her. Jesus calls her Miriam. He calls to the truest part of who she is because in Christ, no longer is she defiled. She's not pure. She's innocent. So she's Miriam. She's no longer Mary. She's no longer Maria. He calls her by name. And that's what the gospel does. I believe that the Lord is calling you by name today. Because earlier in the gospel, John wrote this in John 10. He likens himself, Jesus, to a shepherd and says, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He continues, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life which is what? To know and be known by God. I give that to them that they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The invitation for each of us this Resurrection Sunday is to be called out by name. For God to invite you to himself, to invite you in eternal life, which is not a time of life, but a quality of life. 
It's not a future thing. Eternal life is an experiential reality now. To know Jesus and him crucified. To walk with him. To be loved. To experience hope and faith and trust. And the fullness of all your desires met. Does that mean you're going to get everything in life that you want right now? And all your sadness goes away? No. The Lord actually says in your life there will be trouble. But what happens is it reframes the, de- the desires, it reframes our sadness, and it now gives it worth because our hope is not that our life changes. Our hope is that Jesus will come back and fix it all again. And so when we come to this morning and we have this opportunity to profess our faith, It's not just believing in objective truth that Jesus rose from the dead. It's an invitation to have him call you by name as innocent and pure and without shame and loved and desired and pursued. That's what the invitation of Easter is this morning. And that's the invitation given to each of you right now. We do something every week that's called communion. It's the remembrance of what Jesus did on our behalf. His life, his death. And by going to the table, this is us saying that I believe. Not just that I believe objectively, but I believe and I want to be known by name. The kids are going to be coming in in a second, so don't worry. This is part of the plan. So the invitation, and I'm going to invite the band up, and the band is going to, we're going to sing a song, uh, and we're going to start singing a song, I should say. And by going to the table, you're taking the bread, and you're recognizing that the bread signifies his body, which means his body broken for you. This is him being crushed. This is what happened on Good Friday, that he died in your place for your sins as a sacrifice and a substitute to defeat sin, Satan, and death. The juice or the uh, wine, which they're labeled, by the way, signifies his blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. When we go to the table, uh, Paul says in Corinthians that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is, in essence, a family meal. This is an allegiance meal. This is a, a way to say, you know what? Yeah, that stuff uh, is not just objective truth. I'm actually aligning myself with the risen Savior. I'm not just saying, yep, Jesus died and rose again. I'm saying I now walk as his disciple in the midst of life. I'm no longer defined by My sin, I'm no longer defined by what stains me. I'm no longer defiled by my shame. I'm now, like Mary, I'm given a new name. I'm called by my true name that makes me pure and innocent. And it's not just because my name is that way. It's because who calls my name? And that's Jesus.